Father, indeed, your faithfulness is great. Your faithfulness is to the highest heavens. Your majesty is, is far above us. Your wisdom exceeds our understanding. Uh, we cannot attain it. And Father, we come today to look again at your word, to thank you for it, for your goodness to us through your word, by your spirit. And we pray, God, that you would uh, help me to teach clearly um, and carefully. And God, that uh, you would, by your spirit, apply uh, the word to our hearts in this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, if uh, you didn't get a handout, they're back there on the table. Uh, help yourself. It's a uh, slimline framework for you, so it's not a fill-in-the-blank. You're going to have to do some work if you're going to walk away with decent notes here. So it's just a framework of our, our discussion. But um, so this is our final week in Song of Solomon, and uh, we're going to start with just a recap, set, set uh, the stage of where we've been in this and uh, so, so just to catch us up to, to where we're going to start today, which is chapter 5, verse 2, uh, we saw, we've seen our main characters, uh, Solomon and the Shulamite, um, express their desire to be together to the exclusion of others. Uh, they've, they've enjoyed time among the flocks, in the pastures, in the forests and vineyards, and have uh, reminded themselves and others and us at least twice that uh, it was not yet the time for their full expression of their love uh, with one another in a physically intimate way. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 8 to 17, uh, he calls to her. This is where he comes down from, uh, down from the mountains like a gazelle. He's looking through the window, peeking through the lattice, calling her to come away. Um, she affirms her wholehearted commitment to him, yet again reminds him and her that uh, this, is, this is not the time. The day hasn't, the day hasn't come to fruition yet in, in their relationship. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we hear of her re recurring dream uh, of, of her searching for him in a home in, uh, in the, the city, and how lovesick she is. Uh, then verses 6 to 11 of chapter 3, we see uh, the bride-to-be being brought out of the wilderness to Jerusalem, surrounded by 60 of Solomon's mightiest men. Um, so in, in his uh, royal transport, uh, it was called a sedan chair, um, being brought uh, on their wedding day to him, uh, which, which Solomon notes as the happiest day of his life. And then chapter 5, uh, Solomon declares uh, the beauty of this woman who, who he now calls his sister, his bride. He acknowledges that he too is, is lovesick for her, that uh, their, their marriage is consummated and a glorious benediction is pronounced over their relationship. Uh, and the celebration of this good gift and the good God who has given it. So that brings us uh, right up to chapter 5, verse 2. And uh, we're going to 
get through the rest of this today, Lord willing. And so if you haven't already turned to Song of Solomon, would you do that? Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, Song of Solomon, find Isaiah and turn left, and you'll run right into him. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, I'm going to start there. I'm just going to read the first uh, handful of verses, verses through verse 8. I slept. This is, this is her uh, speaking again. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and was gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me, as they went about in the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I'm sick with love. Okay, so we have what looks like a parallel uh, to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, this nighttime searching uh, for him, but the occasion is different. Um, in that in chapter 3 it was clear that this seemed to be a dream because it was a recurring thing night after night and here this has really all of the makings of a real encounter um, because she says I slept but my heart was awake so we, we understand this um, probably to be just a light sleep and, and that a sound uh, would her, awake her and what we're going to see here um, at least the first recorded um, conflict in their young marriage. Uh, they may have had others, but uh, we, we will see troubles arise in the relationship. So she, she acknowledges that as she slept, she was awakened by a sound, and the voice of Solomon, who, who in, in short said, let me in, uh, let me in, I'm here. Um, and her response, look at verse 3, um, is fascinating. He, he, requests, he comes and requests entrance. Uh, he's wet with the dew or rain or both, we don't know. Um, but she says to herself, um, gee, you know, I've, I've, I've already gone through my bedtime routine. I've you know, I've, I've brushed my teeth, I've done whatever I need to do to my face, I've, I've washed my feet, um, I'm really comfy in bed, I'm all tucked in, it's nice and warm, and uh, I, I don't want to get my feet dirty, I don't want to have to get redressed to go and, and open the door. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating and sinful response of selfishness. All right, here's, a, here's an example of Philippians 2.4 not working itself out, not looking to the interests of others. Um, 
So one of the commentators has written, in stark contrast with her earlier eagerness, uh, she was, when she was willing to undergo the effort and risk of traveling out into the fields under the heat of the midday sun to be with him, now she can't even be bothered to cross the room to let him in. Um, so verses 4 to 6, he tries the door, he reaches out, he tries the latch, and it's locked. There's nothing he can, he can do. Um, it, to no avail, so far as he knows, but what has happened at the same time as he tries the latch and jiggles it, her heart leaps within her. And she literally has a 180-degree change of heart. Um, and she gets up. She comes to the door, fumbles with the latch. Her hands are slippery with, you know, whatever lotion it is that gets put on hands at bedtime. Finally gets the door unlocked and opened, and he's gone. He has, he has left. Um, she can't find him. She calls, and there's no answer. Um, he has now sinned as well, right? We don't, we don't have any record of a conversation uh, beyond just let me in uh, and, and trying the door, and then he's gone. There's, there's, no, there's no question asked. There's no uh, conversation about, uh, listen, uh, I can wait. If you, you know, I can wait for you. I'll wash your feet again. <laughs> you know, trying to, trying to sort this, this out. He's just gone. Uh, we'll learn later, perhaps, where he's gone, but, but he's gone. So she now goes out, verse 7, into the city streets and squares, uh, which in real life turns out to be a far riskier venture than in a dream uh, because the watchmen at night um, have treated her poorly, uh, beaten her and bruised her, taken away her veil. Now, we don't, we don't have any explanation of why. We can only speculate, but in her uh, turn of heart, the middle of verse 4, my heart was thrilled within me, and, and now she's at the door trying to, to get it open, gets it open, he's gone. You could imagine her going out into the night, not dressed like uh, a queen, like, like the bride of the king, but dressed in another way that would cause the watchmen of the night to, to make assumptions that were wrong about why she was out in the middle of the night and, and to thus mistreat her in this way. It's not the main thrust of the, the passage, but it, but it makes some sense. And the section here in verse 8, um, we have no happy ending just yet. Uh, she's pleading uh, for the daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, uh, tell him. I'm, I'm sick with love. Okay? So, so let's talk about just some keys from this text, this, this, even these just seven verses we've looked at. Um, great relationships affirm things like, my beloved is mine and I am his. But the reality is, uh, all too often, uh, we live or can live uh, relentlessly self-focused lives where uh, it's more, it looks more like my beloved is mine and I'm my own. Uh, and, uh, and when two people are doing that to one another, it's, it's trouble in a relationship. Um, 
So both have sinned and neither are justified in their action or their inaction. She won't get out of bed and, and, and he, at hearing this, sulks away, storms away. We don't know what, but, but he's gone uh, in, in just a moment when she comes to try to, uh, to open the door after he had tried it himself. So his impatience uh, convicts him. So think, if either of them, not, not even both of them, but just either of them takes a different pathway about prioritizing the needs of the other, putting the interests of the other ahead of their own. Think about the, the grace and selflessness uh, of Philippians 2.4. This story has an entirely different ending. Uh, it's, not, it's not her out in the city looking for him and getting beat up by the watchman. Uh, they're together. Um, so even if they would just pause, take a breath, <laughs> ask a question, clarify, rather than just uh, in, in anger or selfishness, uh, do what we see. So the take-home here uh, for husbands and wives, or really anyone who wishes to be one someday, um, your marriage is the most precious human relationship that you have or will have, bar none. And uh, we don't dishonor the Lord's good gift ever um, by walking away uh, or uh, walking away, uh, treating, treating our spouse in the way that we know we could get away with treating our boss or a stranger uh, or, or anyone else. So, uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a good instruction for us here, uh, negative instruction from this passage. But we're going to go on, and uh, so verse 9, we're going to get the, is it the rest of the chapter? Yes, we are, verses 9 to 16. So we have the voice of others speaking to her now. What is your beloved more than any other beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And she responds, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, his lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. Okay. So she uh, answers the question uh, pretty wholeheartedly that uh, he is the best for her, distinguished among 10,000. Uh, from the neck up, she compares him to things from nature, ravens, doves, water, spices. And then uh, as she's describing his body, she's talking about precious metals and architectural and structural things. So we would, we would say he's a hunk, you know, right? He's, he, he looks like a, a solid building. 
Uh, he's regal, a regal sight to behold. And in verse 16, I want you, I want you to make sure that you didn't miss this. For her, he's perfect. In her heart and her mind, he's perfect and altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Right, so in this relationship, there is a commitment that has grown and a companionship that's grown uh, that, that is stronger yet than, than the physical intimacy and the desires that we have seen in previous weeks on this. Um, okay, so we will march on again into chapter 6. Because the question comes back to her. Well, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful, beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? And she answers, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Okay, so question asked and answered. Where is he? And she is given the answer. But I want to look more specifically at verse 3. Um, her statement, we've seen it in content before. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Back in chapter 2, verse 16. Just turn back and look at that. It's the same content but there's a difference. Do you see it? They've switched. That's right. There's a different order. Um, chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now, this is, this is minor, but I think that it's worth noting. Uh, something has changed in her heart, that the first thing she acknowledges is, I'm his, rather than what she had said in chapter 2, verse 16, when she said, he's mine, and, and I'm his. Um, and, uh, and so this is what happens in a relationship as you grow closer and more obedient to the Lord in terms of how you understand love and how you express that. Um, her heart has deepened into a self-sacrificial love. And it shows, even in, even in just this small way that she expresses this. All right, we're going to go on in verse 4 of chapter 6. We hear his voice now. And, and what we'll hear is much of a repeat from chapter 4. You, speaking to his bride are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one 
the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Okay. So she is use, or he is using now stronger language to describe not only her beauty, but just how exceptional she is in his mind. Uh, lovely as Jerusalem may not mean a ton to us, right? But Jerusalem was the very center of not only the nation of Israel, but the worship of the God of the universe. It was, it, was, it was where Solomon's temple had been built on this hilltop in this glorious display. It's where all men came three times a year to, to worship during particular feasts. It was, it was beyond any importance that we could ascribe to any city that we know in our own lives. It, we, just, we just don't have a paradigm for that. I mean, unless you're really, really, really stuck on like your hometown and you cry when you think about it. Uh, that's what's going on uh, in, in his heart. And so he compares his bride, how excellent she is, uh, lovely as Jerusalem. No number of queens or concubines or young women can hold a candle to her in Solomon's eyes. And in verse 10, he compares her to some of God's most singular and spectacular creations. Right? Imagine being compared to the sun and the moon, uh, those, those twi- two lights that give light by day and by night. He's saying, you are just tremendous beyond description. Uh, this is the depth of his love. Okay, we are on to verses 11 to 13, which, by the way, um, are just about as difficult to understand as any part in this book. So I'll just... Uh, Heads up for that. All right. So verse 11, chapter 6. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Okay. If you have no idea what that, all that means, it's all right. <laughs> I've read dozens of pages on this and read this over and over again. And uh, I will tell you what I think that we see here, but it's tenuous. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through a couple options. One is that this is her speaking in verses uh, 11 and 12, that she's describing a garden in springtime as she had in chapter 2, uh, and, and she desires to rekindle their love into bloom again. Uh, and then before she knew it, she was in the chariot with her Prince Charming, with Solomon himself. Um, the last line of being reunited with Solomon is probably a good fit, but it's it's unclear why she would go to this garden uh, when she's already found Solomon in the previous section because he's talking to her uh, um, in, in the previous section we read. 
I think better uh, for us to understand this is that this is actually Solomon describing where he went after she locked him out or, or didn't, didn't open the door to him. Uh, so it's, it's after the reconciliation, and he's just describing what had happened. And, and he says, uh, well, listen, I, I went, you know, I, you wouldn't let me in. I was impatient. I went away, and I, I went to a garden, and I, and I observed these things. Um, and, and as it turned out, uh, while I was there, uh, along came uh, part of the army, and we had, we had struck up a conversation about military matters, as, as I could imagine any man having some, something like that. I, I started out doing this, and then I got a call about business, and then I started, we started talking about chariots and about you know, uh, strategy. And uh, yeah, so I think that that is what's happening here in verses 11 and 12. The ESV uh, marks this as she talking, and I, I think that it's, that it's he uh, in this place. And then verse uh, 13, um, the first half, uh, these are likely the daughters of Jerusalem calling the Shulamite uh, to return likely to the palace so that they can behold her. And the second half, uh, Solomon is, he's at least um, questioning, if not protesting, uh, their motives. Um, and buried, buried in the, the text, in verse 13, you probably see it as a footnote, um, why, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? And this is, uh, you, you probably see a footnote that talks about the dance of Mahanaim. Yeah. So, you know, what in the world is that, right? So this, this is a dance that was celebrated at the end of a successful military conquest. And, and the words, you know, the history of this is probably that it was a fairly evocative dance and so Solomon is, I think, rightly speaking to these daughters of Jerusalem, well, why should you be allowed to look upon my bride in this particular way, in, in something similar to this? Um, in short, he's saying, that's for me. That's not for, that's not for you anymore, if it ever was, but it's not for you now. Uh, that is for me. All right. Um, actually, in, in this, uh, I, I had been referring to her as the Shulamite all along. We found, finally now find the verses where she's called that in verse 13 twice. Um, this, is, this relates to an area of Israel uh, in the northern part of Israel, a village named Shulam or Shunam um, in the valley of Jezreel, up close to the Sea of Galilee near, near Capernaum. So, so uh, that's where she's from, at least. All right. We're on to chapter 7 uh, now, verses 1 through 10, where we get one more time uh, him declaring the, the grand glory and beauty of his bride. Okay. Starting in verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. 
Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters, like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And we'll stop there before we get to her response. So again, uh, many of these similes and metaphors escape us, right? Uh, being, having a nose like a tower of Lebanon, I think is a good thing. <laughs> uh, I think it's a good thing, uh, the, the way that it's described here. Everything else he's describing, he's expressing his desire and his love for his bride. And she is not only um, desirable, but she's regal. She's not only to him alluring, but magnificent and strong. Um, it, is, it is really summed up in verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant or delightful, how beautiful and delightful you are. Um, yeah. So, unlike uh, other descriptions, he now also is expressing his own desire for more than just beholding but, and extolling her beauty. And so these are words that he just would not have expressed uh, before they were married. So this is why we, we not only see the description, but him describing his own desire uh, to be with her. So now, uh, in, we were in verse 9, chapter 7, verse 9, the middle of that verse, she is responding. In fact, I think she cuts him off mid-sentence here. Um, I'm going to go back to the beginning of verse 9. He says, and your mouth like the best wine. And she interjects. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. So we talked earlier about the my beloved, right? And now we have a third example of this, and she is declaring, I am yours. And she is glorying in the fact that he's just crazy about her. Yeah. Um, so, um, all of this is more than just two people in love with one another, right? This is glorying in God's good creation, his good gift of relationships, and knowing that he perfectly gives and perfectly withholds uh, relationships like this, uh, this gift of marriage. So it's a reminder, no matter uh, your state, that the Lord is the giver of every good gift, including the gift of human relationships. Um, this couple has now reunited. There's, there's no trace of bitterness or unresolved uh, or harbored anger uh, over their misunderstanding, their sins earlier. Um, we, we assume, though we don't have a record of it, that uh, 
Unlike the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18, uh, Solomon and his uh, Shulamite uh, don't forget the mercy that they were given when they were forgiven, and they exercise that same uh, confession and forgiveness with one another. Um, Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 5, of course, hasn't been written yet uh, and by this time, but they are already putting God's glory on display in their relationship. They're already living a life in their relationship that is an echo of God's love for his people. Okay. On to verse 11 in chapter 7. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. This is her speaking. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Okay. So I had, I had you see in your outline, I had named this right, in the country and in the city, and this is, this is our country part. She says, let's, let's get away. Let's get away from people. Let's, let's go out and enjoy one another in the country. Uh, in in the, so, the splendor of God's creation and the solitude of the vineyard. Uh, here again, as we've seen all through this, the senses are treated to a feast uh, with fields and wildflowers, um, vines, grape blossoms, pomegranates, mandrakes, choice fruits. And again, we see echoes of the Garden of Eden, where choice fruits, new and old, uh, everything that one could imagine is already there and prepared. Um, so this is, a, this is a far cry. She has prepared this place for them to go be. This is, this is a far cry from the woman who wouldn't get out of bed to let her husband in at night in chapter 5. Um, something has clicked in her heart and her mind in terms of living out uh, the love of, within their marriage. Okay. Chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. Oh, that you were like a brother to me. This is her continuing to speak. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of the pomegranate, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so this is our city part, and, and while city isn't uh, explicitly described here, this is more of a public eye of their relationship that's described. And uh, it's okay if verse 1 sounds really confusing, why she wants... She wishes that he were her brother. And, and here's the point, is that in that culture, siblings embracing and kissing one another in public was just great, was fine, was encouraged. A public display of, infection, of affection, not infection, <laughs> public display of affection uh, with your siblings was, was, was encouraged and was, was just everyday normal. Not so with husbands and wives. Um, 
that, that that was for privacy. That was for a time for just the two of you alone. And so this is, this is they're in some public setting, and she is saying, man, I really want to kiss you, but you're not my brother, you're my husband. <laughs> that's very strange to us in this, in this day and culture, but, but that's, that's what's going on here. Um, okay. But her desire, uh, you can see, is for her uh, in this intensifying uh, series of actions from this scenario that she's painting. Um, in starting in verse 1, I would kiss you. Uh, I would lead you. I would bring you into my mom's house. I would give you spiced wine. Um, and uh, she's, she's enraptured with this idea of, of being together, which brings her again for the third time now to this oath that we've seen. Right, we saw it back in chapter uh, 2, verse 6. Um, yeah, we saw it somewhere else, and it's not in my notes, but it, are, it is there three times. I think it's back in chapter 4 was the second one. Um, sorry, chapter 3, verse 5. Um, this call again for the third time uh, to remind herself to remind others that there is a right time and place for physical intimacy within a relationship. And the reminder is given to us as well that the Lord blesses those who are obedient uh, and patient and trust the Lord's good timing in all of these things. Okay. We are bringing this into the, the station now. Chapter Eight, uh, verse 5. And I'll tell you before we start this, about the only agreement about these last 10 verses of the song is that there's no agreement on, on them. So, uh, uh, yeah. It doesn't mean you just get to make up whatever you want, but there should be a reason. And, uh, and there's, there, but there's lots of disagreement in terms of how to understand these. I hope that we can help you through it here. Verse 5. I believe that this is Solomon speaking. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes, its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Okay, here's my argument. We've seen these words before. Um, back in chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6, Solomon says, What is that coming up from the wilderness? like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Well, this, this was the, the delivery, as it were, of his bride-to-be, surrounded by uh, 60 of his finest warriors. On his royal transport comes his bride-to-be to Jerusalem on their wedding day. And I believe that Solomon is reflecting on this happiest day of his life again, saying, who is that coming from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And he is describing as well um, that 
on their wedding day, their love was awakened in a way that it had not been before then. And then, in verses 6 and 7, we have really for the very first time something that takes the focus off of them exclusively and starts talking about these huge principles about love. So this is, uh, in the very last 13 minutes of our three weeks, a print, some principles that can help us paint back into the rest of the song and understand um, what's going on. Uh, we see the language of a seal. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Um, the language of seals is one of, of identity and ownership and protection and authenticity. Um, we're told that the Lord has sealed his own with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. The Lord knows who his own are. And um, then we get from the middle of verse 6 through verse 7 these grand statements about love, um, love and jealousy or ardor. In fact, these words are almost interchangeable here, um, and, and they're held up as parallels. Love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Um, so love is uh, a devotion to another, right? a willingness to give what I have, uh, that you need because God asks me to, no matter how I feel about it. You've heard that before from Pastor Dan. Uh, and jealousy to be fiercely protective. You understand that not all jealousy is sin, right? That the, God is a jealous God, right? Fiercely protective of, the, of his own honor and his own people. It's part of his love for his people. But fiercer, stronger than the grave, uh, compared to the strength and severity of lightning and fire, uh, it is uh, a flame or fire that, that the entire world's waters could not put out, uh, and it can't be purchased. Uh, in fact, the one who would, who would sell all of his goods and seek to purchase love, true love, uh, is just considered a fool. It's a fool's errand to try to do that. Uh, the, the point is that love is a gift from the Lord. Yeah. So an application here, if, if that doesn't describe, uh, for those of you who are married, it doesn't describe your marriage, now you have something to aim at. You have something to ask the Lord uh, for his grace to grow uh, toward a love that is ferocious and unstoppable. Um, and, and for those who hope uh, one day to be a husband or wife, um, these are words that, that should let us know, don't settle. Don't settle for anything less than a love that's blessed by the Lord that, that, is, that is within the guidelines of what the Lord has ordained. Yeah. Don't settle for sentimentality uh, or whims or fancies or daydreams. Um, nor, of course, give in to unbridled passions. But finally, this is, this is a picture, and I mentioned it already, of the forever settled and overwhelming love of the Lord. Okay, verses 8 through 12. We need to finish this up quickly. We have a little sister. These are, I believe that these are her brothers, the Shulamites' brothers. 
We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, she says, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Okay. Verses, verses 8 and 9, it's unclear whether the brothers are speaking in real time about the Shulamite's younger sister, literally, who has not yet come of age, or whether they're reflecting back on the time when the Shulamite was before she was ready to have a relationship. The point is the same either way, and that is her brothers were guarding her and protecting her honor, and they wished to adorn her with purity, and so they were out to uh, help her protect her own honor. And that is a sweet thing to see siblings who are encouraging one another in the Lord to faithful living. Um, yeah. She, in verse uh, 10, describes herself as, as a pure person, and her purity uh, brought peace to the relationship with Solomon um, because there was no divided uh, uh, allegiances, no questions about past behavior. Uh, her uh, purity uh, because of how she conducted her own life and the protection and work of her brothers blessed Solomon. And finally in 11 and 12, um, the Shulamite is uh, comparing real transactions of, of Solomon uh, renting out vineyards and being paid for it, and then her own willingness to say, um, I'm yours. My vineyard, my love, it's yours. Yeah. Okay, last two verses. Here we go. Uh, verse three, 13, Solomon is speaking, O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Okay. Our, our, because we use in the English language you for everything, whether it's you or you, uh, I guess we use you all and all y'all, but uh, they, didn't, they, don't, they weren't from the South, clearly, uh, the people who did the ESV. Uh, this is a singular feminine. He's talking to her. He's saying, you, my bride, my beloved, who have companions who are listening for your voice. I want to hear your voice. Speak, speak. And she does. She says, verse 14, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And so it's interesting, the word make haste is really run away or flee. It's the same thing she had told him uh, I think it was at the end of chapter 2 when he showed up looking through the lattice at the window saying, come on, let's go. And she said, turn and go back to the mountains, the cleft mountains. It's the same verb. She's, she's saying run away, but she's saying run away to the mountains of spices, 
So she's essentially saying, flee to me. Um, so that is her call. And that is, uh, that's the end of the song. It's, it ends just about as abruptly as it began. You remember our uh, chapter 1, verse 2. You know, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And here we end. Let's go run away. Um, we have just some key takeaways here for you to think about uh, from the entire book. Um, this is a celebration of marital love and intimacy. It's clearly that. Um, from MacArthur, he writes, in contrast to the two distorted extremes of ascetic abstinence and lustful perversion outside of marriage, Solomon's ancient love song exalts the purity of marital affection and romance. The song expands on the ancient marriage instructions of Genesis 2.24, thus providing spiritual music for a lifetime of marital harmony. That's about as poetic as MacArthur gets. That's pretty good right there. Yeah. Um, uh, second point, so first point, a celebration of marital love and intimacy. A second point, that this is a celebration of the God who gives those gifts and who blesses them. Um, and so an obedient waiting for the right time uh, is, is spoken of and God himself blesses, speaks a blessing over this couple. So a celebration of the God who gives and blesses this gift. Third, it's a reminder that troubles come but by God's grace, they can be overcome, right? So we've, we've had foxes in vineyards. Uh, we've had the, the little dust up at nighttime with her not wanting to get out of bed, and then by the time she does, he's gone. These frustrations come, and, they, and as, as we live in a broken world and are broken people, uh, sin exists within relationships, and there is a place for uh, confession, uh, for uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. So a reminder, third, a reminder that troubles come, but by God's grace can be overcome. And then fourth, uh, this song is an acknowledgement of God's goodness and a picture of God's love. Um, though God's name is not given in the song, we see his hand in these lives, guiding, directing, protecting, and blessing. And within the larger context of Scripture, the song stands as a living illustration of other passages like Genesis 2, Proverbs 5, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. Uh, this sort of puts the boots on the ground in one example of how that lives itself out, the love of God being put on display in the love between uh, two people. Okay, so that is a wrap on the song. I hope this was a profitable time for you. I know that it has been for me. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your spirit. Uh, thank you for this study. Uh, we pray that it would be a blessing uh, in the hearts of those who hear it, uh, and all glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.